There we're rolling. All right, let's start with the white sheet, and then we'll, then we'll jump into our study here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's go ahead and flip over to the, uh, to the next page. Um, so I'm just pulling the memory work, the memory Bible verse, uh, each of these weeks out of one of the uh, chapters that we'll be reading from the book of Romans, and I'll, and I'll continue doing that uh, throughout the summer here. Um, but, so let's go ahead and read Romans 10, 17. Let's read it all together. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Um, and so this is what, and then we have the table of duties. We have that long section on what hearers owe their pastors. Um, and, and some of it has, so the first couple um, have to do with uh, taking care of the uh, pastor's um, earthly, earthly needs. And then also, also uh, the respect owed to pastors and then submission to their authority. Um, so let's just, let's just read the last two. Uh, we'll start with the one from 1 Thessalonians 5, and we'll also read the one from Hebrews 13. So let's, let's start with we ask you there all together then. Um, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And then the next one, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right? Um, so there, there are certainly wicked preachers, wicked pastors out there. Um, um, so so that, that understanding that, um, most by and large, though, most pastors um, exercise their authority not because they uh, want to be commandeering or something like that, um, but a good pastor exercises the authority he has because he knows what is true according to the word of God. Um, and that is precisely why the hearers are called to submit, because what the pastor speaks, uh, he speaks uh, the word of God. And then also, right, that the reason... The reason a good pastor is doing this is because he must give an account, right? So, so pastors must give an account um, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ um, that is different from the account given by, uh, given by, by, the, average, by the average Christian, All right? So that is, uh, that is why the pastors keep watch over you, because we are men who must give an account. 
All right, well, let's, let's move on uh, to the prayers and so we can jump into announcements in our study. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given us grace to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity by the confession of a true faith and to worship the unity and the power of the divine majesty. Keep us steadfast in this faith and defend us from all adversities. For you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. All righty. All righty, so just a few announcements here. Uh, reminder, after uh, the 11 o'clock service today is the uh, quarterly voters' assembly. Um, it's, pro it's preceded uh, by a pizza lunch. So if you are a voter, please, please come to that assembly. Um, and if you are a youth, uh, please come and help us serve the pizza lunch. Uh, and because it's toasty in here already, and it will not be less toasty in here by then, we will hope, hope to keep that made in the wall. Uh, is Rich Katera in here? That was for him specifically. All right, uh, BBS this week. Volunteer training is happening right now. Um, I don't think you need to say any more about that. Um, if you do, if you are one that comes to our Wednesday morning divine service that's normally at 1115, uh, because of VBS this week, that service has moved to 1145. Uh, and again, uh, like most of these were announced, all of these were announced in the church. Uh, our 8th our grade teacher for this past year, uh, Ms. Becca Hahn, took a call to cross Yorkville, her home church. So she'll be teaching there next year, which means we have a vacancy in our seventh and eighth grade, um, and we need that filled. So if you know of any any teachers who would be a good fit for seventh and eighth grade here at Bethany, uh, please submit those names uh, to the office, and we can so we can reach out to them. Uh, and, and finally, again, this was announced during church, but but it, we'll announce it again here. Um, so uh, as part of our normal Sunday routine, uh, so after the divine service. Uh, we have a, I don't know what it's called, there's um, a, group of, a group of people, most of them ladies, who are our communion care team, I guess, society, I don't know. Uh, anyway, we need people to do communion care, and what that means is after the service, uh, cleaning the sacred vessels used for our Lord's body and blood, um, and if it's after the 8.30 service, getting them ready for the 11 o'clock service, or if it's after the 11 o'clock service, uh, cleaning those vessels and, and getting them put away. But we need, uh, we need more people on the rotation for that. Um, so please, if you are willing to do that, uh, contact Pam Split. And her contact info, I believe, is in uh, the week at a glance that went out uh, this past Friday. Uh, I believe that's all of our announcements for today. Uh, so there's one thing I was going to quickly address at the beginning of my sermon, but I was running around quickly trying to get communion set up or get the communion count adjusted. Um, and so the, the, the hymn of the day was like on its last verse and I was trying to get the individual cups veiled again and run over the pulpit so I could preach. Um, so I forgot, I forgot to do this little addendum at the beginning of my sermon that I had originally planned on. I preached everything I wrote, but there was a part that I didn't write that I was gonna say at the beginning. Um, and so I wanted to put it out there. Um, so today's Trinity, and because today is Trinity Sunday, we confess the Athanasian Creed, and we confess it one time a year. Um, so that means there's some 
interesting bits and technical stuff in there that may be kind of confusing um, and, and could just use some clarification. Uh, so I thought I'd do it real quick here in Bible class. So the first is the use of the word Catholic. Um, and by that, it does not mean uh, the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic simply means universal and united, right? So the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, right? Um, all professing, all Christians, all true Christians are part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It doesn't mean they're Roman Catholic. It just means that that's the universal church united by the gospel. Um, I think we've been saying that part, we've been giving that caveat for so many years now. I don't think that bothers very many people anymore. Um, but just in case, there it is. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, and this, this one uh, uh, makes, uh, causes uh, the hairs on our, on our backs as Lutherans to stand up, is the very end of the creed where it says, um, at the coming of Christ, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith, the end. All right? Um, and and I, know, I know that sometimes uh, raises our eyebrows a little bit, and so I wanted to say a quick word about that. Um, so that what that is not at all confessing is what we would call works righteousness or works-based salvation. Um, what that is confessing, though, is absolutely true. Uh, and so think for a moment about Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. Um, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his glorious throne, and he will separate the nations as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And he will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, enter into the inheritance that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and in prison and you visited me. Alright, to the ones on his left he says, depart from me you workers of lawlessness, for I was hungry and you did not feed me, I was naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Alright? Uh, Alright, so there is an accounting of works when Christ returns. Um, but the key here is that those works are not what saves. Because what saves? What is it that saves us? Christ. And we partake of that salvation through what? We have been saved by grace through? Through faith. We're saved through faith, right? So believing. Um, so that means if we're saved by grace through faith, that means we are necessarily not saved by works. If we were saved by works, it would no longer be race. It would be uh, our due, our reward. All right? What we are owed. All right? But we, at the end of time, will give an accounting of our works, and those who have done good will enter into eternal life. So how does this work together? Uh, so because we are saved, because we have faith, through faith we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we actually have Christ dwelling in us. And because we have Christ dwelling in us, we do good works. That's part of being a Christian. Good works aren't necessary for salvation. They don't contribute to salvation. But good works do necessarily take place in Christians. And even though we still have sin and the weakness of our flesh, 
Um, because we have Christ dwelling in us, he sanctifies our works and makes them truly good and God-pleasing. And every Christian has these works. Every Christian has good works. Because faith without works is dead. Right? So we have good works. Um, and good works don't save. And the accounting of the good works doesn't save us because of the works. But our good works are evidence of what? What do our good works bear, bear witness to? They bear witness to faith. So when we, so when at the end of time, there is an accounting of works, and our good works are listed, that is proof that there is faith. And what does faith do for us? It, it saves us, right? Uh, for those without faith, they might have works that the world would consider good, but because they don't have faith, they don't have the indwelling of Christ, and because they don't have the indwelling of Christ, their works aren't sanctified. And because their works aren't sanctified, they are not truly good works. They are not made, if they're not made holy by Christ, um, then their works cannot overcome the sinfulness of their flesh. And so they too will give an accounting of their works. And their works will all be found wanting. They will be found not to be righteous, and they will be found therefore to be wicked works. All right? And they will be, and so, like I said, the sheep, those who have done good, will enter into eternal life because what their good works are evidence that they have the faith which saves. And those who have done wicked works will enter eternal fire because their lack of good works is, is evidence that they don't have faith. And so they enter into eternal fire. Any questions about the Athanasian Creed? All right. Uh, someone in the Narfex asked me a little bit about the Christology of the Athanasian Creed, but uh, I don't think we're going to, uh, to go through that at the moment. Yeah, go ahead, Don. The Athanasian Creed? Oh, yeah, so um, that's a good question. So most of the church's confessional documents, the creeds are maybe the first of these, um, when the church has these big confessional documents, they're born usually out of controversy and false teaching and heresy, all right? Um, so the Nicene Creed is a prime example of this. Um, the fact that we say that Christ is of one substance with the Father um, is born out of a heresy. There was a guy named Arius running around teaching that Jesus was not eternal, that he is less than the Father, even with respect to divinity, that he wasn't always God, and that he uh, began as a man and was turned into God at some point, and that there was a time before he existed, and that he certainly wasn't of one substance with the Father, all right? Um, and because of that controversy, the church got together at the Council of Nicaea in the year AD 325, shortly after Christianity is legalized, and they hash this out according to Scripture. And so they write, according to the Scriptures, they write this creed, stating what the Scriptures teach, and it's primarily against the Arians. The third article, article of the Nicene Creed comes later, more like 381 AD, because there were those who were denying that the Holy Spirit is God. So the third article of the Creed comes later to affirm the Holy Spirit's deity. The Athanasian Creed is, is, is the same way. It's certainly not written by Athanasius, it's, it's later than Athanasius, but it, 
But Athanasius was a, a saint who wrote a lot against the Arians. And so this creed is born out of the teachings of Athanasius. And again, right, Ari they, Arius himself is um, defrocked, he's exiled, he's excommunicated. Um, but, uh, just, but doing all that doesn't kill a teaching, it persisted, right? So, so for years and years, there were still pockets of Arian teaching. And so at some point, the church formulated the Athanasian Creed after the teachings of Athanasius to continue to deal with the Arian heresy um, that Christ is really, that Christ is less than God. Um, but also to articulate that uh, the unity of Trinity, all right, that, that all three persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal, uh, but that they are distinct. So there's difference in person, but unity of substance. Uh, and figuring out what exactly these terms mean is something the church had been arguing about for quite a while. Uh, you gotta remember, these arguments all started when Christianity was illegal. And so a lot of these, um, they were, the, the, uh, the dissent was there, but a lot of the church didn't know about it because you couldn't really openly communicate across the Roman Empire because the church was kind of underground, had to keep quiet, and the emperor was going to kill you. And so suddenly, when Constantine uh, declares uh, the Edict of Milan, the Edict of Toleration, and suddenly Christians can openly talk with one another, they found out that there was a lot of things uh, that certain sectors, certain teachers had won. Right? So that's part of the, the, the historical development of the church and the creeds. Uh, our Lutheran confessions are, are, are the same way, right? That there was a false teaching. And so documents were written to address and correct the false teaching. All right, so that's all of our confessional documents, of which the creeds are a part, and then uh, the catechisms, Augsburg Confessions, Small Call Article, and Formula Concord, uh, you know, all arise out of, in, in, in order to address false teaching according to the scriptures. Surely you have your hand up. And he suffered in this day. I mean, unless they buried in a white guy. <laughs> it's just how these, again, part of it's what's under attack, right? The Apostles' Creed, very early on, it's kind of a baptismal creed uh, given to candidates at baptism, really there to just confess the basics of the faith. I don't know if the Apostles' Creed was born out of controversy or not, or if it was just written as a helpful summary. Of, of the work of the triune God and the life of Christ. Um, when the Nicene Creed is written, no one is arguing about whether or not Christ died. Everyone accepts that he died and was buried. And so the word died is just implied under suffering, right? His suffering led to his death. But if there were, if there were at that time, people who were, and, and remember, the Nicene Creed, they're assuming the Apostles' Creed is true. They're, they're expanding on it, but it's not a correction in any way to the Apostles' Creed. None of the creeds are corrections. They're further expansions and clarifications. Um, so the Nicene Creed assumes under the word suffer that you know he died. But if someone was denying that Christ died, well then the Nicene Creed I'm sure would have expanded greatly on the death of Christ. But they didn't need to. They needed to prove Jesus was God, not to confess that he died. And, at least in that moment. That's, that's, what, that's the confession they need. Eric. Yeah, so um, I guess I have a question. I heard I was just from a different pastor when I was volunteering in Michigan. Oh, oh. And I 
Because it's trying to get me in trouble here. Sure. far more torturous 
uh, than the nails and the crack floors and the, and the beatings. And, and it was every sin for all time, not just those that had been committed, but every sin that, uh, that would be committed in the future. All right. Well, this is ostensibly a study on the liturgy. <laughs> Um, so, we've been setting up a lot of things the last couple of weeks. We made some distinctions a few weeks ago um, in vocab, um, and, and maybe we'll refresh those as we go along. Uh, last week, we talked about the setting of the liturgy. Um, so, one of the distinctions we had was between rite and ceremony. So, the rite, if, uh, as we recall, is the words of the liturgy. Ceremony is everything else, so the actions where the liturgy takes place is a matter of ceremony, the architecture of the church, the way the pastor dresses, where he stands, where he faces, what he does with his hands. All of that is a matter of ceremony. And so we discussed some ceremonial matters last week, specifically of church architecture and also of, uh, of the uh, pastor's vestments, so what he wears. Um, because everyone does, I made this point three weeks ago, no, whatever you do, you're, you have ceremony of some sort, um, not maybe the way we commonly use the word ceremony, but if, um, if, we were to, if we were to tear down the sanctuary, God forbid, and decide we were going to start having church in the gym, so if we had church in this space, and I wore a t-shirt and jeans to conduct the service, those are all questions of ceremony. And even though maybe we would say that's a less ceremonial service, there are lots of ceremonies. Wearing a t-shirt and jeans is a ceremony. Having church in the gym instead of the sanctuary is a ceremony. Now that's not to say there are, that, that doing this would automatically mean that it's bad, um, but it is ceremony, and ceremony communicates. Like it or not, ceremony communicates, right? So, so we discussed what's communicated. So last week we discussed what's communicated by our church architecture and what's communicated by the vestments uh, that the pastors here at Bethany wear. All right, and so today what I want to do is actually start going through parts of the service and discussing rite and ceremony. All right, and, and, and we'll just do this as we do it at Bethany. Um, I am going to use setting three. It is just, it's the service I'm most familiar with and it makes I think it makes several points that I want to make better than the other services. Um, it's not to say the other services are bad, um, but that's just to say I think setting three is the strongest service we have in the hymnal. And that's open for debate, to be sure. But. So, so we're going to jump into the service. So here at Bethany, how do our services start? What is the first thing we do? Actually, okay, maybe in a very technical sense, yes. but. But that's actually, that's not the first thing we do. Um, that is, I guess, where you would say the service, properly speaking, starts. Uh, but what's the first thing we actually do? We stand, all right? So that's a question of ceremony, because it's posture. So we stand, and what do we do when we stand at the beginning of the service? We turn, we face the cross, and then we... And then we, and then the pastor and the acolyte, pastors and acolytes process in while we sing a hymn. All right. So what, so what is, what is the point of all that? 
Why do we stand face across and walk in while singing? What? Okay, get in the mood. Well, some, okay, sometimes ceremonies, they always confess something, but ceremonies are, inher are sometimes practical. What are you going to say, Barrett? Okay, so there's that, right? So that, that would be the reason that we have a procession where the cross goes first. Some, some questions of ceremony are inherently practical. So the pastor needs to get into the church somehow. If the pastor doesn't come into the church, then, then we don't start conducting the liturgy, right? So we need to get in somehow, and there's various ways we could do that. We could, we don't, we don't have to sing an opening hymn. We could just walk out of the sacristy, go to the baptismal font and start. It's what we do on Wednesdays, actually, because we don't have acolytes in a procession. Um, so we could just walk out and go to the baptismal font and start. Um, we could have a procession where we didn't sing a hymn. We could do all sorts of things. All right, so we make this conscious decision. Um, so we stand and face, right? We face the cross, right? Um, because we, we have to get in somehow. Um, and we've decided that, that uh, a good reverent way that gives a good confession about what's going on in the liturgy is that we walk in uh, behind, behind, the, behind the processional crucifix uh, with the understanding that, that Christ, the crucified one, um, is governing is governing all that we will say and do in this liturgy, right? So we stand and face, we stand and face the processional cross, and we sing a we sing a hymn uh, while this is going on. Hymn usually geared somehow toward the theme of the day. All right. So that's first the first ceremonies and rubrics. All right. Then and then all right, and, and you and you can make the argument that the hymn and the procession aren't part of the service proper, and I'm I'm fine with that, um, and that they're just a way to get in. That's fine with me, but, uh, but that is the first thing we do, and it does say something. Um, and it would say something else if we did it differently. Not necessarily something bad, but it would say something else. So what's the next thing? How do we, how do we begin the service proper, Pat? The sign, the, the sign of the cross, and the sign of the cross accompanied by what? The words. Which words? Yeah, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all right? Uh, and, and, and what's, so we have the sign of the cross, um, which may be made by all. Um, where is the pastor, at least here at Bethany, where does the pastor stand for this and where does he face? Who does he face? He face, where? Okay, he stands at the baptismal font and faces the congregation. Some pastors stand in the middle of the church and face the altar. Some pastors stand in the middle of the church and face the congregation. Uh, none of these are bad. Um, so what we're confessing by standing at the baptismal font and facing the congregation is, first of all, uh, that this service is conducted in the name in the triune name of God, and that we have access. Here's the sermon theme. Uh, so you can skip church. No, don't skip church. Uh, here's the sermon theme for today that we have access to the Holy Trinity through what? What gives us access to the Holy Trinity? Our baptism, right? Because that's where God placed his name upon us, his holy name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and, that's, and because we are baptized, we can then come into his presence um, and speak to him and hear from him without any danger, right? Uh, and so we, stand, that's what, so we stand at the baptismal font, 
Um, and we face the congregation, and I think what we're confessing by doing that is we are, the pastor saying that, we're actually naming the congregation. I am speaking to you and telling and reminding you what happened in your baptism. So when I say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, I am, I am telling all of you that you have been baptized, and because you are baptized, you are bearers of the name of God. So I'm putting the name of God on, on you again. All right? uh, and again, so one of the things that I hope to do in this study is, is, is show uh, the scriptural origins for our worship, right? That we're not just making this stuff up, um, but that it's rooted in scripture. And so, um, and so obviously the scriptural basis for the name of the Holy Trinity is in Matthew 28, where Jesus says to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we will hear that um, in the gospel reading in church today, if, you, if you're going to 11 o'clock church. All right, so that's how we start. And the congregation gives a robust amen. And then still facing the congregation, the pastor continues with what I call what's called the confessional address. All right, so the first part of our service we call confession and absolution, right? Uh, we begin our service um, confessing our sins to God, receiving his forgiveness, because this is what makes us uh, fit, right? The forgiveness of sins makes us fit to stand in the presence of God, and it's especially pertinent for those of us who will receive the sacrament of the altar, that we come into the holiness, we come into contact with the holiness of Christ's body and blood um, with the forgiveness of sins that only comes from God. Um, so following the uh, invocation in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it continues with the confessional address where I say, Beloved in the Lord. So again, I'm naming you because you have been baptized. Because you've been baptized and bear the name of God, you are now beloved. You're beloved of the Lord and in the Lord, right? So we're all Christians. And because we're all Christians, we're all loved by God. And we all have to love each other. That's the command of the Lord Jesus, that you love one another, right? So um, even those that we don't know, when you look across the sanctuary, a big church like this, you might see faces that you're not immediately familiar with, but, but they're your fellow Christians. And so you are all beloved in the Lord, all members of one family united by Christ. So beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart. So there I'm already, uh, uh, so already then, uh, exhorting the people to be honest with themselves because uh, and it, when you draw near with a true heart and are honest with yourselves, uh, what's, what's the next thing that you kind of got to do? Is recognize what? Your sins, right? So we draw near with a true heart, so with a true heart examine yourself and in that, with that true heart confess our sins unto God our Heavenly Father beseeching him, or so another word is imploring him, asking him, begging him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness, right? So, so we come all united as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and one of the things we all have in common in addition to our confession of faith is our, is, uh, is our confession of sin, right? So we all come together, recognize that, we are, that we're all in the same boat, we're all sinful, um, but we're flinging ourselves on the mercy of God here, right? Um, we know, the God that we know and believe in is a God of mercy. So we don't come, uh, we're not 
beseeching him on, a, on account of our sincere repentance and our desire to do better that he would forgive us. We're beseeching him to forgive us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? And then we have a couple little versicles from the Psalms. So the first one from Psalm 124. So the pastor says, Our help is in the name of the Lord. All right, so that's, in Psalm, that's straight from Psalm 24. So again, Scripture being pulled right out, of, right out or uh, liturgy being pulled out of Scripture. Oh, and I forgot to mention, so that, that confessional address um, largely pulled from themes from Hebrews 10, um, right, where we draw near to the throne of God with confidence uh, because Christ has shed his blood. So Psalm 124 then, um, let me get to it real quick where that is, is a short psalm. It's a psalm of ascent, which makes it exceedingly appropriate. So the psalms of ascent were psalms prayed by the Jews as they went up to the Temple Mount. So these are psalms you would pray as you approach the house of God in the Temple on Zion. So it's exceedingly appropriate for us to pray a verse from the psalms of ascent as we approach, as we approach God's presence in the divine service. So Here's um, Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel not now say, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. All right, so we're, we're like the people of Israel. If God had not been our side, then we would have been swept away and defeated um, by our enemies of sin, death, the devil, our own sinful flesh. Um, but because the Lord fights for us, these things, we have, uh, we have fallen into sin and yet... They have not completely overcome us. We are still Christ's. And so we have escaped and we have fled to the refuge of Christ in the divine service. Um, and we can be sure that we have a help and a stronghold here. Um, why is our help in the name of the Lord? Because he did what? He made heaven and earth, right? Um, and if he is mighty to create heaven and earth, then he is also mighty to help us, um, to free us from our sin and grant us and grant us life. All right, so we have our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then we go to a penitential psalm, Psalm 32, um, which, is, which is, I think, pretty, uh, pretty familiar, but just a couple verses from it. Um, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Oh, this is a psalm of David. So um, Psalm 51 says that that was pulled, that David prayed this after he went into Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet came to him. Uh, this might be from a different instance in David's life, but I think, it's, I, I think it might be a similar reflection on the whole, maybe later in life, but a similar reflection on the incident with uh, Bathsheba, Uriah, and then the um, preaching of Nathan the prophet. So David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And I think this next part is very key. David then says, For when I kept silence, 
My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength dried up by the heat of summer. So what's plaguing David when he's being silent and not confessing his sin? Why does he describe himself um, as groaning and dried up? What's plaguing him? Guilt, his conscience, right? So David has a bad conscience. I think, I think this is maybe written later in David's life, and he's reflecting on the state he was in after he had Uriah killed, but before Nathan came to him. Um, you know, he thought he had covered it up, and yet, even though it seemed like he had successfully gotten away with everything, internally he was in turmoil. He had a bad conscience. And so he was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then we have the turn in verse 5. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, O Lord, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, right? Um, so I think, I think it's good for us to know what came before this verse uh, and in the liturgy here, um, because why? I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, uh, because when we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives the iniquity of our sin, and this is a much better course of action than keeping our sins in and not confessing them, because when we don't confess them, then we have a bad conscience, we're plagued by guilt, and we're dried up as by the strength of summer. All right, that's as far as we're going to get today. Uh, we'll keep moving through this next week. We'll get through the confession of sins and hopefully well into the service of the word. Uh, God bless your week, and we'll see you in church. Oh, yes, don't put the tables away right now like we normally do uh, because we have voters uh, because of the voters' assembly today.